Well, I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer and join me in Mark's gospel. <clears throat> the gospel according to Mark. And before we take our seat, we'll read the text that we'll consider today. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that uh, you said not one iota, not one jot, not one single syllable or word or even uh, letter of your scriptures will pass away, that they are eternal, they will remain. Thank you that the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that your word is a sword that cuts us to the heart. And so this morning... As we can but venture no further than a single of these verses, may you cut us to the heart, may you mold us and make us, may you undo us, break us, and reform us in your image for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. You may be seated. I, um, I love to start new book studies. I love to introduce new books probably as much as I hate to end books. There, there's a sense in my spirit that I have not yet here at Hillcrest, I, I am yet to fully exhaust all we can get out of a single book of the Bible. And so I never want to wrap them up and call it done. But I also love to start new books. I love to examine the history and the author and what it is that makes this particular work unique. And so we will take this opening sermon, as we often have in the past, to really get acquainted with this particular volume in the library we call the Bible before diving headlong in for what is an extended journey together on Sunday mornings in the gospel according to Mark. Now, it's for that reason that I've entitled today's sermon, Mark, the man behind the gospel. The man behind the gospel. Our goal today will be to get familiar with the man who penned this account of Jesus' life, to try to understand a little bit of his unique motivations, and appreciate what makes this version of the story of Jesus, special. Like Genesis, like Hosea, and like John, the first word of Mark's gospel is beginning. Beginning. In English, it must read the beginning, but in the original language, the first word is beginning. Genesis starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that same tone, Mark begins the story of Jesus by alluding with that same word to that same hand of God, ushering in a new era of human history. 
This beginning, Mark's beginning, is a reminder of God's activity in history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world. And so, too, the age of the gospel is manifest when the Son of God becomes a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I love the way James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, puts it. For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And so he begins, like Genesis, in the beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before the author gets to Jesus, he first introduces us to John the Baptist. And before we can get to John the Baptist, we have to first ask, who is writing, where, when, and why? Right? It's the only reasonable thing to do, in my opinion, and I have the microphone. So we'll consider number one, if you're taking notes, our first goal will be to consider a portrait of the author. A portrait of the author. Let's talk first about Mark's hidden presence in his gospel. None of the gospel writers refer to themselves, but they do cleverly allude to themselves. Matthew refers to himself simply as the tax collector sitting in the tax booth whom Jesus called to come follow him, who is then immediately thereafter hosting Jesus in his home with his fellow outcast tax collectors. John refers to himself cleverly as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I always appreciate when you're telling the story, you get to say who Jesus loved the most. A lot of artists will hide their own likeness in their artwork. You may have seen this. Just last night, Leslie and I watched an episode of a favorite travel show where the city of Rome was featured. In one sculpture, the artist uses his own face to portray a very realistic young David slinging the stone that defeated Goliath. Only a moment later, the cameras pan to a, another artist painting a portrait. Only this time, the artist's face is portrayed on the beheaded head of Goliath, held suspended by his hair in the hand of the triumphant David. Mark possibly hid himself in his artwork as well. Turn with me to chapter 14, if you will. Verse 12 begins a new section and a familiar story to many of us. Verse 12 of chapter 14, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters... Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Here in this passage, Jesus had 
arranged covertly with, quote, a man who would carry a water jug, unquote, as a signal to his disciples to know who to follow and where to go. Because of Jesus' enormous fame by this point, he could not freely walk through the city streets without being mobbed by the crowds. And so that individual, the individual who owned this home, had at some point previously offered to Jesus to host his disciples for Passover. And these secret agent-style instructions were pre-planned to discreetly get him and the twelve to the house without causing a big scene. Now, many believe the man carrying the jug of water was no less than our author, a very young John Mark. And the house where they had that supper was that of a woman named Mary. And Mary being an incredibly common name, because it's the same name as the sister to Moses, that is the Greek rendering of that name, she is distinguished from the other many Marys as the mother of John, who is also called Mark. We find that reference in Acts chapter 12. So I want to invite you to join me there. Turn to the right to Acts chapter 12, and we'll camp out in the book of Acts for a few minutes in order to complete this portrait of the author. Here in Acts 12, this same house is playing host to the disciples who were gathered praying for Peter who had been arrested and was feared to be dead. We read there in verse 1, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, because this is what politicians do, they do what is popular, not what is principled most often. When he saw it pleased the Jews, which would be good for him politically, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized, them, seized him, he put him into prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, meaning a 24-hour watch, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, no doubt to also kill him, right? So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, where were they praying? That's what we learned. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. That's a pretty intense guard, right? You're chained to two guys, and there's two guys at the door. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Look, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision, which would have been pretty, I mean, like if, if you and I were dead asleep in the middle of the night and suddenly this happened, we'd probably think we were dreaming too. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, <laughs> he, 
He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, meaning his own blood. When he realized this, he went look to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. I love this. MacArthur says, how about this? You have a prayer meeting, but you have zero confidence that the Lord will answer the prayer. (laughs) You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel, because they figured he was dead already. Some faith, right? So, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that is the other James, the J- James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. And so here again, we're introduced in a very nondescript way to John Mark, son of Mary, in whose house the church obviously met as a central and frequent location. Where did Peter go when he came out of prison? Straight to Mary's house. Straight to John Mark's house. John was his Jewish name, Jehonan. Mark was his Greek name, or Marcos. And so here it is, at this point in the early church, Mark is not a featured figure, but he's referenced. He's used as a benchmark to identify someone else who seems herself unknown to the audience. That make sense? You might not know who this Mary is, or you might know 18 Marys, so let me tell you who this Mary is. She's, well, the best way to describe her is she's the mother of John Mark. So as the chronology of the church goes in its early history, Mark seems to be not anybody important. But by the time the book of Acts is written and compiled by Luke in likely A.D. 80 or 90, Mark is the well-known helper to Paul, cousin and helper to Barnabas, convert and disciple of Peter, and author of the first authoritative gospel or record of Jesus' life. That's what's implied right here, and that's what is supported in the rest of the text of the New Testament. Well, let's talk a little bit about Peter and his closeness and influence to Mark. This will be important throughout our morning. It's likely that Peter spent much time at this house of Mary. The church no doubt met there often, and Peter was around. Peter was in Jerusalem. Peter was preaching, and Mark, no doubt, listening there in Jerusalem. That's where this story takes place. Now, if you skip to the end of Acts chapter 12, Paul, and, uh, Paul, who's called Saul so far in Acts, and Barnabas had collected some support for the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea, having returned from Antioch to Jerusalem and now back to Antioch. 
But when they left Jerusalem, we read that they brought with them, chapter, chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, because there was a famine, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Mark's at home until Paul and Barnabas bring food and, and money to support the church in Jerusalem and Judea during a famine. And when Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, they take with them John, whose other name was Mark. But in the meantime, during this 12 or so year period between the establishment of the church and John Mark going to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Mark was under the tutelage of the apostle Peter in Jerusalem. Now again, at this point, Saul had been converted. He had spent several years in the Arabian desert being trained by the Holy Spirit, several quiet years of ministry in his hometown of Tarsus, and he was now based in Antioch. Peter and the half-brother of Jesus, James, were in Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas had effectively begun their Gentile-focused ministry in a crucial and historically focused, uh, historically influential Greek town called Antioch. But again, that means for 12 solid years, John Mark would have been sporadically, if not intentionally, converted and discipled by Peter himself. But let's read what happens next. The story advances about our author in chapter 13. Now there were in the church, verse 1, at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Again, they're in Antioch. Okay. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Look, and they had John to assist them, John Mark, who they brought from Jerusalem, who was then commissioned out onto the mission field for the first ever, you know, like global effort to truly take the gospel to the farther reaches of the Roman Empire. There was John Mark with him. However, however, this helper fumbled and stumbled. Skip to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Paul has begun his famous missionary journeys, right? This is, this is the, the famous, the whole New Testament uh, is centered around Paul's missionary journeys, we read the inception of those journeys just a moment ago. He's in Antioch. The Spirit compels them out, and they begin these circuits, of which Paul does three. During the time that he's traveling, he's writing to people and to churches, and that's the bulk of the New Testament. So we've got the inception of these journeys right here. But 
just a short way into the first journey, Mark is out of his depth. He gets cold feet. We don't know. He misses his mama. We're not sure, but something happened that occasioned verse 13. And Mark left them and went home. Now, Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't impugn Mark's character for leaving. He simply states it as a matter of fact. And for a couple of years in the timeline, Mark is seemingly just back in Jerusalem, but again, under Peter's tutelage. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas are traveling from Greek town to Greek town, planting churches, facing down Jewish opposition, teaching Gentiles all about this Jewish Messiah named Jesus. They complete one circuit, and they're back in Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 15 picks up the story in verse 36. You with me so far? That's, that is, mm. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Hmm. Paul says, I don't think it's best to take someone who was withdrawn from us. The word is episteme. Episteme. It, it's a, it means deserter, departer. It, it is a conjunction. It means the anti-stander. Instead of standing with us, Mark did the opposite. And these partners in missionary work, Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement over John Mark's presence on this journey that they separated. These men who had labored side by side for years in Antioch, for years on the mission field, parted ways because of this deserter, Mark. Paul didn't trust him, couldn't use him, couldn't count on him, refused to have him accompany them. And so Barnabas Barnabas took his cousin Mark, went one way, Paul took Silas and went another. And if I'm Mark, I feel pretty lousy about that. Don't you? Fast forward 10 years. And Paul writes to the church in Colossae, from Rome, saying, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So he's in jail. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, greets you. The Mark concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Over those 10 years, something happened. 
Mark went to do ministry with Barnabas, wound up in Rome with Paul somehow, in jail with Paul, the deserter is now being endorsed by the apostle. Fast forward 10 more years, and Paul writes to Timothy from his second and most believe final Roman imprisonment, writing to Timothy saying, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul's obviously got a problem with people deserting him, right? Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is... Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't help but... Uh, I can't help but relate to Mark. And I think perhaps many of us can. It's quite a turnaround, isn't it? From deserter to a faithful helper to a requested companion in Paul's loneliest hour. to gospel author. What a turnaround. What a story of redemption, right? And this is where we come as we're answering questions. We come to the why of Mark's gospel. Why did Mark write this down? This deserter turned friend, turned companion, now turned author. Why? Well, if you follow the train of events, Paul is imprisoned in Rome for several years. Seemingly at the beginning of that imprisonment, Peter is also imprisoned in Rome. And Paul writes to Timothy saying, send Mark, he's very useful to me. I need him. Now, Mark is in Rome with Paul. And Peter is executed. Peter, his mentor. Peter, his pastor. Peter, who we'll read later, refers to Mark as his son. Fast forward another year. Paul is believed to have met the same fate. Mark is there in Rome. 
His pastor is dead. His, his companion, to whom he's been restored, after deserting him on the mission field, also dead. And there's a sentiment among the church fathers that Mark was compelled to write what he knew. Like they were pleading with him to write down what he knew. The first generation of Christians were dying out. The apostles were being picked off one by one. The eyewitnesses to Jesus' life were passing away. And Mark had a unique vantage point. Possibly the man carrying the jug leading the disciples back to mom's house, listening for years at a time to Peter's preaching and teaching about the ministry of Jesus. His pastor is dead. His hero to whom he's been restored is dead. He's there in Rome. The sound you might imagine of the crowds cheering their deaths, echoing in his ears. And Eusebius records Papias, who is a disciple of Polycarp, who is a disciple of John, so just three steps removed from the Apostle John. Hang with the ancient phrasing. So great a light of religion shone upon the minds of the hearers of Peter that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation. But with all kinds of entreaties, listen, urged Mark, whose gospel is extent, seeing that he was a follower of Peter, to leave them in writing a record of the teaching transmitted to them orally. So they heard it from Peter, but they said, Mark, you heard it best. You spent years with him. He was your pastor and your mentor, Peter. Write it down. Nor, Papias goes on, nor did they cease until they had prevailed upon the man. And so they became responsible humanly for the scripture that is called the gospel according to Mark. That's in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. That's a pretty good portrait of the author, huh? Perhaps just a boy, or as my 13-year-old son, Pate, would be referred to as a young man, especially in Jewish culture, 13, carrying the water jug, indiscreet among a crowd of people, all getting ready for the feast, giving secret instructions to the disciples, perhaps maybe even cupping his ear to the door, right? Maybe trying to listen in. Definitely spending years with Peter, being called a son by Peter, being on the mission field with Paul, seeing miraculous things, traveling with his cousin Barnabas, then being restored at some point, becoming a useful, faithful, strong helper to Paul. Now urged to write down what he knew. Perhaps now he's an old man, he's aged. portrait of the author. Well, I want us to consider a little bit of the structure of Mark's gospel. 
before we conclude our time together. So if you will, turn back with me to Mark. And if you will, just pop over to chapter 8 and pause for a moment. Let's consider number two as we are introduced to Mark's gospel. Let's consider the construction or the structure by the author. That is the structure of his gospel account that is imposed onto the story by Mark, the author. This is where we answer the question of where. Mark's ministry context, as we've already discussed, was largely among the Gentile church. Yes, he was mentored by Peter in Jerusalem, but his work, his 20 years seemingly of faithful service, was out on the Gentile, non-Jewish mission field. And therefore, he constructed his gospel with a Gentile audience in mind. It's Especially helpful to recognize, according to that letter from Paul, that when Mark wrote the gospel, he had been called to Rome to be with Paul. So he's in, if you will, the heart of the Gentile world. Having spent 20 years on the mission field in the Gentile world, he now writes an account of Jesus that has a very Gentile audience in mind. And there's a few ways that we know that. The first of which is that Mark quotes relatively infrequently from the Old Testament. He explains Jewish customs when they come up in the narrative. He translates Aramaic and Hebrew phrases into their Greek equivalents. In many ways, you almost might say that two gospels were for the Jewish church and two for the Gentile church. Almost like Matthew and John were written for the Jewish church converted to Christianity. And Mark and Luke, Luke, of course, himself being a Greek doctor, wrote the other two for the non-Jewish church. Therefore, the study of the book of Mark will be especially helpful for us who are also largely unfamiliar with Jewish custom. And we'll note these things, like when Mark explains a Jewish custom or translates the Aramaic phrases, we'll note them as we come to them. But it's helpful to recognize almost an audience that he has in mind. That's the first thing about the structure. The second thing I want to note is this phrase in chapter 8. If you look at verse 29. You know what? Let's back up and do verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi, or Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say you're one of the other prophets, one of the ayahs, maybe, right? And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You are the Christ. Now, both in terms of the number of words 
and in terms of the narrative structure, that phrase, you are the Christ, is at the center of Mark's gospel. Everything before it leads up to it, and the careful reader will recognize that everything after this is like a response to it. It's a pivot point in the way that Mark tells the story. And this is a picture broadly of a device that Mark uses nine distinguishable times in his gospel called, get ready, you're going to love this, the sandwich technique. That's, that's the literary phrase that this is called. It's called the sandwich technique. Uh, so if you're a big Chick-fil-A fan or if you just like a good pastrami on rye, this is your kind of Bible class, right? The sandwich technique. What is the sandwich technique? Well, it's seen large scale with that one verse in Mark 8.29 in that there's something before and there's something after and then something in the middle But in order to appreciate the before and the after, you have to see the emphasis of what's in the middle. That's the sandwich technique. And if you pass over it and don't recognize the literary device as you come to it, you won't read the author's primary point of focus. There are nine examples, like I said, of the sandwich technique in Mark's gospel. And here's how it works. A story is being told, that story is interrupted, and a mini story is placed in the center, and then the story is finished. And they're like spread out almost evenly throughout Mark's gospel. This was not an accident. This was very much on purpose. And each time there's a main point that the whole together makes. And to ignore it or to miss it is to miss that main point. And so, it's therefore important that we recognize the big sandwich. What's the main thrust of Mark's gospel? It's Peter's declaration, you are the Christ. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And when you consider Mark's and Peter's personal relationship, you further appreciate that Mark would place this emphasis by Peter at the center of his literary work. In fact, again, Papias, Polycarp's disciple, John's disciple, writes, Mark, an interpreter of Peter, wrote with exactness. Justin Martyr refers to the gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter. Mark's gospel is the product of Peter's eyewitness testimony. Peter was among the big three who were among the first to follow Jesus, so they saw the most of his ministry heard the most of his teaching, and Peter was among the big three, Peter, James, and John, who was often invited into these little exclusive parties, like the Transfiguration. Matthew didn't have that, and so we recognize even historically that Matthew referenced Mark's gospel. Why would 
that disciple reference some other disciple's account because Peter was places and saw things and heard things that Matthew did not. Oh. As we unpeel these layers, we begin to appreciate something special is happening here in this often forgotten red-headed stepchild of the Gospel of Mark. It's apparently quite special. Well, I don't want to say any more about that because we don't have time and let us just recognize that Mark is a unique character. He certainly lived an interesting life. He has this unique approach as a trained Levite. He has a unique approach to his literary devices and he uses them to emphasize points throughout, the most important of which you are the Christ. I'm reminded of the opening to the letter of Hebrews. Wrong glasses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's all about Jesus. Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. The center of the sandwich is the phrase, you are the Christ. And so it is not the gospel of Mark, nor the eyewitness testimony of Peter. It is the gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? It is the beginning of the gospel not of Mark, not of Peter, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is all about Jesus. The whole Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Well, after considering a brief portrait of the author and a bit of the structure imposed onto the story by the author, I'd like us to just in conclusion consider, as I alluded to earlier, our likeness to the author. Our likeness to the author. Uh, we, I think, can readily relate to Mark Maybe because he's a deserter who was then restored, or maybe not. But certainly because he was ordinary. There are no recorded miracles performed by John Mark. The book written and attributed to his name is more closely linked to Peter than it is Mark himself. He's characterized in the inspired and, listen, eternal text of Scripture as a quitter 
that's brutal. But the biggest thing is that he's just an ordinary guy who is useful for the kingdom. Not because he was a powerful orator of the great truths, not because he displayed the power of the Spirit through miraculous signs and wonders, and not even because he never stumbled over his own two feet. He's special because he was useful. And he was useful because he was restored. And I would imagine, one can only assume, he was restored because he was broken. And so we, like Mark, are ordinary people. Perhaps ourselves guilty of deserting our own faith. Deserting our Savior at one point or another in our Christian journey. Maybe the allure of the world was too enticing to you, like Paul said of Demas. Maybe the pursuit of money at some point, friend, overtook you. Maybe the pressure from your context pulled you down. Maybe your own lack of biblical discipleship showed your true strength and you walked away. Maybe not completely, but like Mark, you didn't stand. And now here you are, perhaps filled with some of the same regret as your pastor. And maybe you're wondering if you can still be useful. Or is it too late? Well, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like our author, you too can be restored. You can rejoin the team. You can be counted as a useful tool in the hand of your maker. You can be considered helpful instead of untrustworthy. No matter your past, no matter your history, Mark records best the words of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so MacArthur asks, are you surprised that God would use someone like Mark? You shouldn't be. Those are the only type of people there are. Recovering sinners, restored deserters, and redeemed defectors. Defectors. The cross of Christ is powerful enough to redeem even the most lost of sinners, even the most unreliable of servants, even the most stubborn of prospects. Will you humbly surrender to him? Will you be restored from your desertion? Will you surrender all as the song proclaims? That's the invitation of Jesus, to go from a useless wanderer to a gospel minister. And so I look forward to the journey through Mark's account, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word and for the joy 
Now that comes from its careful consideration. I simply ask that you would um, soften stubborn hearts. You would comfort the regretful. That you would redeem the deserter. And that out of this body, you might make a whole host of useful servants for the sake of the gospel. Such that this community has never seen. Is there any end to what you can do through a small group of faithful servants? Is your arm too short? Is your power limited? Lord, if we believe these things to be true, that you are limitless in your power, that your mercy is greater than all of our sin, then we have no reason to believe that you might not make of each of us a truly useful servant for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, by your mercy, we beg that you would make it so. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.